thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your life. Welcome to Wellness Women Radio for the women with big dreams who dare to be different and who want to thrive in health, work and play. Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston bring you a weekly podcast to help you master true health and create an exceptional life. This episode of Wellness Women Radio is very proudly brought to you by Dinner Twist. Dr. Ashley and I want to let you in on a little secret of how we maintain our healthy whole foods lifestyle with very little time. And one of those ways is actually with Dinner Twist. So they plan, they shop, they deliver everything to our door to take all of the guesswork out of having really healthy meals for dinner each night. Um, I love Dinner Twist because they are a locally family-owned business here in Perth in Western Australia, and all of their produce is locally sourced and seasonal. So they are really invested in all of their suppliers as well, which is absolutely amazing. Everything is so fresh. Uh, Ashley and I both get the Wholesome Box, which is naturally gluten and dairy-free as well, and is very consistent with a paleo-type lifestyle as well. Uh, so it's, you know, completely consistent with, you know, the way that we want to eat and want to feed our loved ones too. This is also how I trick Dean into thinking that I can actually cook. So seriously, if I can do it, everybody can trust me. And their recipes are so delicious. They also have other options apart from the wholesome box. So they have a family box for bigger size families an express box. If you're really short on time, uh, as well as a vegan box too. Now, we would love to give you the opportunity for you to actually try Dinner Twist and realize how healthy, how delicious and how fresh it is, but also how much easier this is going to make life as well. So we have a special promo code for you, and that is going to give you $35 off your first box. And that is WWR for Wellness Women Radio. Um, So we would love you to uh, try for yourself. Don't take my word for it, but let me know what you think. Without further ado, ladies, onto the show. Hey there, wonderful listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today on Wellness Women Radio. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And don't forget to follow us on all of our social media channels, which is the Wellness Women on, you know, Facebook and Instagram, uh, Dr. Ashley Bond on everything. I am the Period Whisperer on Facebook and DrAndrea.xo on Instagram. And ladies, if you've got a second and you haven't done it yet, please stop what you're doing. Unless you're driving, you can do this later and go and rate and review us on iTunes, please. Um, because this really does help to keep us in the top of the charts, which means that so many other women can find us and find this helpful information. So please rate and view five star ratings, please. Okay. That's my public service announcement. Um, this is a heavy topic tonight. Well, look, this one is thanks to a lovely listener and client just asking questions about, you know, should I get a iron infusion? And uh, I think, you know, both Andrew and I clinically have been seeing so many of our lovely lady clients getting uh, IV iron therapy and also recurrent or repeated IV iron therapy. And I think, you know, both of us have noticed of recent years, there's just uh, more discussion about it, more frequency of referral for uh, iron transfusion or infusion. And it's got us both asking the same question. Where's the data? What's the evidence? And is it safe? Um, because, you know, we, we generally glanced over some info that says, oh, yeah, it's all good. But most of those things come out of, you know, a hospital data sheet 
we were more interested in asking the, the big deep question of why is there ongoing iron deficiency? Why do we need, you know, regular infusion? And if there's underlying cause, are we identifying it? You know, could we be doing this and treating iron deficiency anemia better? So that's what we want to have a chat about tonight. We just want to sort of dive into this idea that, you know, is an IV iron infusion the gold standard of care for low iron in women um, or should we be considering other things uh, should we be doing other things first mm. and using this as a critical care emergency use only so mm. let's rock into it let's have a chat about it <laughs> and um ash we're, we're sort of posing this question is an iron infusion the answer to these problems and mm. this is one of those episodes where we don't have an absolute answer for you because the research is so unclear and Ash, I think this is what you found so startling is that the research is severely lacking on this. Yeah, the um, meta-analysis um, in JAMA was just the pose. The final conclusion was there's a lack of information. Uh, we need to research so this further. We I'm don't sure. have you know long-term data. We don't know what the long-term um, health implications are of recurrent use of IV uh, iron. We don't know uh, a lot about the reporting of side effects because it appears they must be highly underreported. So. That's, you know, that's always interesting when something that's considered gold standard of care doesn't actually have the volume of data behind it to um, to be, yeah, I guess, going straight into the bloodstream. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. bypassing the natural absorption pathways of iron. So we really should be you know, using consideration, caution, and uh, I think critical questioning as to whether that's the best way to do it. I completely agree. And um, Ash, I'm sure that your uh, practice base is, is the same, that I it seems to be increasing at such an exponential rate of women needing iron infusions. Well, I don't even have the data for the last few years, but just to give, I guess, perspective and context to this conversation, and I'll give you just what I know from the MJA, the Medical Journal mm-hmm. of Australia, um, they were talking about the PBS, so this is our Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme funded intravenous iron therapy, um, just for women aged 18 to 44, so it's only just a small subsect of the population, and they said that the data from 2013 was 17,920 dispensers for the IV iron and in 2017 just four years later it was in excess of 97,000 so we've jumped up 80,000 you know extra infusions in just four years Um, and if we were going by that statistics you'd have to assume that you know in the following four years up to 2021 there's also been a you know a growth in that as well and I think that fits with our clinical experience right there looking at that number you know from 2013 to 2017 to 2021 um, it's just become sort of mainstream management for iron deficiency anemia. And it seems to be that once someone's had an iron infusion that uh, they feel like, oh, no, it's totally fixed. Um, don't have to worry about it. Let's not worry about addressing underlying causes as to why the iron was a problem in the first place. If you're a woman, you've got a period, that must be the problem. We'll just blame it on that. Rather than actually investigating and looking at, okay, what root root cause um, you know, what is actually causing this underlying issue of, you know, whether it's clinical or subclinical um, sort of anemia, um, and all, you know, the, the low iron scores on the blood panels as well. And hopefully that's been done and it's been done thoroughly. And hopefully other factors that are going to affect this is also being looked at. But I really don't think it is. Um, so many women that I see their biochemistry of have got such low ferritin. Um, and 
It's almost like the low ferritin or the excessive ferritin are both problems. There's always this Goldilocks effect when it comes to iron. And iron is obviously so, so essential um, for the body. It's involved in so many different things. It's involved in, um, you know, obviously we need iron to make hemoglobin. Um, It forms part of its structure. It helps to carry oxygen to red blood cells. Um, But it's also required with so many like enzymatic sort of functions of the body as well. So if um, that actually rely on the heme of that iron to work properly, like things like cytochrome P450, which you would have heard of talk about so many times on the podcast before, which is involved with even estrogen metabolism. So we, we need all of those things to be, to be working properly and our, obviously our liver function and everything else. So we need, obviously need iron for that. Um, but what happens when we go overboard like how much can the body actually take in? What's causing this deficiency? Maybe, um, Ash, maybe if we look at like the things that we see causing the deficiency and not just because women are menstruating. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think, you know, firstly, just starting with the idea that there are multiple causes, multiple factors as to how and why a person gets to a point of iron deficiency anemia. Um, for me, you know, being low in iron is not a, not a, description. I'm just like low and iron, cool, but why? You know, it's, it's always that same thing. That's interesting, but why? You know, when I have someone say, oh yeah, my I doubled my iron, but they went from like a four to an eight. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's talk about that. So some of the most common things um, we see, let's assume you already have some, you know, some general symptoms of iron deficiency. There's a reason why you've been to the doctor. There's a reason why you've got a blood test to indicate, um, you know, low iron storage. Mm-hmm. And then you now know you've got low in iron. So we're just going to bypass all those symptoms and signs and everything like that. Like there's, there's plenty of that information out there. Let's talk about how you got there because I think that's a really good question to ask. Well, hang on, I've got low iron, the blood test shows me, but we need to ask that next question. Well, well, I wonder how I got here. I wonder why, you know, I've got low iron right now and it's not just because I have heavy, heavy periods. You know, that could be one part of it, but let's go a little bit further. So I would have to say that, you know, clinically speaking, Probably the number one thing I see that is, you know, beyond the menstrual cycle is poor absorption and poor gut health. Yeah. And, you know, this for me is like the first thing I consider. If someone says I've got low on my brain first goes, okay, what about the gut? What's going on there? Because you're considering these absorptions and there's quite That's how your body uses it, right? It's absorbed in the the top part of your duodenum. duodenum. Um, Yeah. That's how your body actually absorbs and utilizes it in the first place. So that makes perfect sense for it to get there in, in the first place and go through that sort of breakdown to be able to be utilized we need to make sure we've got really good stomach acid. And that's usually one of the first warning signs. So if we think of digestion from top down, we've got to make sure that each of those pathways are working. Yeah. And so look, some of those things that can induce uh, stomach acid or result in low stomach acid are things like there's age-related reduction. There's also stress, you know, deplete stomach acid. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize taking things like Nexium for reflux um, and heartburn can actually, you know, inhibit the gut acid, which of course is now going to reduce our absorption of iron. So taking PPIs is a big no-no when it comes to iron deficiency anemia. Um, You know, history of high carbs, high sugar diet. I mean, all of these things 
contribute to our inability to absorb and assimilate iron. I think, you know, we also have to consider my other question usually results in, you know, what sources of iron are you consuming? So if someone's um, vegetarian or vegan, then they're going to be consuming the uh, sources of iron that what they considered non-heme iron. Mm -hmm. And these are much harder to absorb and they're often more poorly absorbed. So it takes a lot more work if you are vegetarian or vegan to make sure you are getting sufficient uh sources and absorption of iron the heme sources of iron for example are you know animal sources and of course they will be extremely well tolerated and absorbed uh, as long as there's good stomach acid and of course you know if you've got um good gut health and you know vitamin c sources so all of these sorts of factors have to come into play um but you know it sounds really funny a lot of people think you know, having lots of calcium is essential for their bones. It's a very female thing to think, oh, I need calcium, mm. it's got to be good for bone health. But what we do know is that calcium competes for iron in absorption. So, yeah. you know, if you've got um, dairy and calcium uh, in high intake, mm -hmm. then you're going to get low iron. Now, a lot of people don't realize that or don't even have any idea that that's, you know, a concern. So, again, there's just so much to consider in diet and lifestyle alcohol, tea, coffee, like all of these things um, can affect our iron storage. I know. Um, and actually just mentioned coffee, which is obviously, you know, one of my, my major loves. But unfortunately, ladies, black tea and coffee yeah. can reduce iron absorption by up to 90%. And it's because of the tannic acid in it. Mm -hmm. um, and it affects the absorption of both supplemental and dietary forms of iron. Um, so they need to be separated. So if you are taking iron supplements, make sure it's well and truly away from your coffee. I'd say separate it by at least two hours. Um, and if you're eating like, you know, a iron rich meal, same thing, keep your, your tea and coffee away from that. And um, actually the, the really interesting thing about the absorption of iron from say the heme or the non-heme sources. So obviously your heme sources, I, I like to think of those as your non-vegetarian sources. Um, whereas the the non-heme is is from like your plant sources, which is much more poorly absorbed, about half of that than say from the, the animal protein sources. But non-heme absorption is inhibited by things like phytates, tannins, which again in the tea and coffee, calcium, as you mentioned, soybean proteins and polyphenols. So often when we're, um, we have like a vegetarian or a vegan diet, we are wanting to consume lots and lots of polyphenols because of the benefit that that has to our gut health. But on the flip side of that, it's inhibiting the absorption of, um, you know, obviously your non-heme sources of iron. The good thing is, is that there has been research that shows that when heme versions of iron is low, the body actually increases its absorption from non-heme sources, but the preference is always it just does better on heme sources of iron as well, um, which just kind of makes sense. Um, okay, so that is uh, absorption. Um, and the other thing I think is also cofactors as well because the body actually needs other things to help your body to utilize that iron in a really good way. So, um, And these are often things that we don't even think about and that, um, is things like vitamin D and your um, your vitamin Bs as well. So especially things like riboflavin or your vitamin B2, you need that to actually absorb and assimilate and utilize iron in the first place. So again, this is that double whammy for people on plant-based diets. The um, vitamin B intake is usually a bit lower as well because 
you know, typically we get that from from animal um, sort of protein sources. So they've got low B vitamins, which is affecting the assimilation of the iron, but also just the iron um, from those heme sources in the first place. Uh, okay, so things that are inhibiting iron. We've got low stomach acid, poor absorption, um, uh, deficiencies, which will affect the absorption as well. And then a really major one, um, Ash, is obviously gluten intolerance. It's Absolutely. a really common clinical sign of celiac disease um, and can be one of the first indications of um, that someone's got an issue with gluten is actually when they've got chronic low iron despite supplementation, um, you know, whether or not they're eating a, um, getting it from their, those heme sources as well, but it's still chronically low and they're still anemic. Um, often, well, that should trigger a practitioner to then look at whether or not they are celiac or gluten intolerant. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's so, so common. I think, you know, a lot of people will um, assume they've got a good diet with a broad, you know, food range, which is recommended by the Dietary Association, and that includes grains, you know. And so you're getting this uh, high grain load, which, of course, unless someone has overt signs of celiac disease, then they may never get tested or checked for it, but they'll just have consistent and current low iron. So, um, you know, sometimes you can actually, you know, heal, seal the gut just by eliminating in, like our yeah glutinous foods and uh, that's one of the, the fascinating ones because it's almost like an instantaneous overnight improvement um, as soon as that inflammation in the gut is reduced then the absorption of iron occurs and they go oh wow you know I've been doing really well and uh, sometimes it's like oh finally the iron supplements are working and it's like no finally it's being absorbed you know finally yes. your gut is not so inflamed finally you can actually take it in and hold that iron storage so um, yeah we, we sometimes give too much credit to the iron tablets as opposed to the healing processes that need to take place in order for us to actually absorb that iron that's being introduced. Um, one of the other interesting ones, you know, having chat to um, a naturopathic friend of mine was we just open discussion about different things, just talk about hair mineral analysis. And I'm kind of here or there on that sometimes because there's mm -hmm. evidence that suggests it's beneficial and other people take it too literal. And, you know, there's a lot of conflicting information as to its validity. But Agreed. one of the things that it landed on was more of a discussion of things like high copper. Mm -hmm. And it specifically competes with the target cells for iron. So it's going to compete. Com for absorption, um, along with a lot of other heavy metals, you know, lead, cadmium and mercury. So people who have been exposed to, you know, industrial agriculture and things like that, you know, farming practices, you might be surprised. Um, and, you know, industrialised cities, there is actually, you know, a good chance there's also heavy metal exposure, which can affect this iron absorption. So, you know, just that's a more of a sort of far stretch one, but it is relevant for those people who have that problem. So, again, root cause, underlying cause, correct testing. Um, one of the other areas I've always found interesting is the frequency of iron deficiency anemia in athletes. And obviously yes. coming from that background, I've spent my whole life being iron deficient, which, you know, <laughs> again, <laughs> well, what the heck is wrong with that? Um of these days, it's not such a concern because, you know, it shows a really a reflection of the reduction in stress load from training loads, plus an improvement in diet, gut, health, and all those other factors we've just been discussing. But, you know, so commonly athletes are diagnosed with iron deficiency anemia. Once upon a time, you just put people on ferrograd C. Now it seems to me that they're jumping for the quick fix IV infusions because they literally are a quick fix. You can overnight, you know, increase your um, iron, blood source iron, and, you know, it seems to solve the problem. So that mm -hmm. fatigue that has amounted from, you know, excessive training loads 
again, solution, you know, what is the problem there? Well, the problem is that high volumes of exercise not only rapidly consume iron, you know, using it up because of the fact that um, you're using excessive amounts of energy exercise, there's also intramuscular and cellular damage, direct damage to blood cells from contact impact, um, particularly, you know, sports. I was reading an article um, that was reflecting on runners and the actual you know high volume running loads the heel strikes in runners create direct damage to blood cells and that i mean that's really interesting now is that enough to cause iron deficiency anemia possibly not but if you couple a high level athlete their dietary choices often tend towards plant-based you know because there's a lot of things that reduces fat intake and all those other aspects a lot of female athletes turn to plant-based diets um and then couple that with the physical damage of exercise and you can see why you've got that, you know, perfect storm for consistent recurrent anemia. So the solution there may not be to continually utilize IV iron infusions. It may be to consider what the root cause sources are, training volume, you know, physical recovery timeframes, allowing the athletes to recover appropriately between competitions when the most damaging contact is occurring, um, you know, dietary source, dietary, you know, processes, reduction of gut inflammation, you know, the heal, heal and seal the gut aspect. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. I think that's probably where I was, this tonight, I was like, I don't really have an answer, Andrew, should we record this? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I think we're kind of like, let's just have a discussion because hopefully this starts just open some areas of inquiry or curiosity or interest in you ladies listening just to help you understand that you know there's there's just not good enough evidence so until we see better evidence longer studies we really shouldn't be going around telling everyone i'll just get an get an infusion it's amazing and the question also is is okay so is everyone kind of getting the same amount and how many iron infusions can one person have um so if we look at like for instance um as you were talking about athletes obviously you're and i i think i saw that um you know high level performance athletes your iron requirements are going to be 50 to 70 percent greater than what maybe the recommended daily intake is um and there are certain times obviously in life where iron requirements are so much higher pregnancy obviously being one of those um, but how many iron infusions can we have? And what we do know is that the body can only take on about 600 milligrams of macrophage iron in one go, and that is from an infusion. And often infusions will easily exceed, you know, 1,000 to even 2,000 milligrams um, of iron in that infusion, which means that, okay, then what happens with that iron overload? And we do know that it absolutely causes oxidative stress, We know that that can also lead to degenerative bone loss, heart damage, kidney damage, brain and liver issues. We also know that it's a huge, um, if we look at say hemochromatosis or again, iron overload just in general, not necessarily from iron infusions, but we have to be able to, um, you know, correlate the two because surely those effects on the system would be, um, I guess, fairly similar. We definitely see an increased association with diabetes, cardiovascular disease um, and metabolic syndrome as well. So more is not necessarily better. And the body can only take on so much. And what we see really commonly is women who have iron infusions will dump it really quickly. So that's why you'll have an iron infusion and then they will retest you within a certain period of time. And I also find that patients who have infusions will often have menstrual changes in the subsequent months afterwards. And I think that this is, you know, just in the body's infinite wisdom and innate intelligence that 
One of the easiest ways for women to dump iron is obviously through the menstrual ble- menstrual bleed. And there's even research that came out um, from the International Journal of Hematology saying, talking about this overlooked side effect of iron treatment, and that is changes in menstruation. So I think that that could be worth an entire podcast episode all onto itself. And we'll dig really deep into that maybe, maybe at another time, because I think that's way too heavy <laughs> for this topic right now. Um, but more is not better. And I really question um, the the safety and the long-term safety of continued iron infusions. And also we know that there are risks to this as well, including things like anaphylaxis. For example, you can actually have very severe life-threatening allergic reactions to iron infusions. Um, Ash, what are some of the other side effects? Um, oh, I mean, things like muscle aches, joint pain, uh, headaches. There's just dizziness, I, nausea. Yeah, um, a lot of them are considered what they call mild. Um, so it's really hard to, you know, assess and at, for how long is it considered okay to have that side effect? Or what I, like, I always like to say, we have this lovely dismissive way of calling them side effects, but I call them co-effects because it's uh, just an unwanted effect, but it's still exactly, you know, what your body is doing with that. So it is important to, to realize what whilst they are considered mild, some people do have ongoing and persistent co-effects of having this increased iron. So, um, yeah, and a lot of people report no change at all. And so that's another interesting, you know, comment is that even with the iron infusion, they're not indicating major improvements in fatigue or any other reasons that they were getting that iron infusion. So, you know, is there an incorrect use of IV iron? Is that the appropriate pathway for treatment um i mean all good questions really (laughs) i think i I think it's just important to say that we don't have the information to tell us whether that's the gold standard but even the mja you know they've indicated their concluding remarks you know in their their study and assessment was that with regards to this increase huge increase in uptake of prescription PBS use for iron therapy um there has to be better consideration of the cost effective um, use and given potential harms and lack of strong evidence base for its value in improving quality of life and reproductive health outcomes. So, you know, and that's, um, that is a really good question. And I think it's great that the medical association are asking those questions um, of their own, you know, group yeah. to ask whether or not that is the best standard. Cause you know, just like us looking through as much research as we've been able to find, it's very limited, um, very, you know, short study, guidelines, um, very limited cohorts. I mean, studies with 53 participants are not a grand study by any means, given how many women are receiving IV iron infusions. So, Mm. yeah, it's just, it's a a good thing to consider, ladies. So, you know, if you think that um, an IV iron is the best way to go because you've heard so many women saying that they're having it and that, um, maybe just sort of check in and see, have I explored the possible whys? Have I thought about what my body's doing and why it's doing this? Have I considered the sources of blood loss or have I considered the sources of malabsorption? Um, Have I considered the sources of iron being put into my body? You know, are they synthetic? Are they, you know, heme, non-heme? Like just, you know, making that full consideration before jumping to what looks like a very quick fix approach but really may not have any great benefit may not have any major long-term benefit because why do women keep coming back to 
iron deficiency anemia, even though they've had an, an IV iron therapy provided to them. So, mm. yeah. Okay. So, ladies, the things to consider if you you are um, sitting in this camp of sort of chronic iron deficiency anemia, um, looking at the things that we talked about. So, are there gut malabsorption issues going on? Is there low stomach acid? Is there liver stuff? Is there gluten intolerance, um, leaky gut? Is Are there parasites, which obviously is going to affect absorption as well? Um, is there possibly occult blood coming out in the stool? So, is there something that's happening, um, you know, in your gastrointestinal system that needs to be taken care of? Like, are you pooing blood is essentially what we're asking. Um, have you looked at the underlying hormonal issues that m- is making you have such heavy periods, which is w- contributing to, you know, your iron deficiency anemia? Um, though, or again, is it a gluten intolerance or celiac disease? I think that that's a really, really good starting point to look at the underlying factors. And those are actually usually quite easy to address in all honesty. And then my favorite homework that I give patients, um, if they have had um, low iron before is to actually get them to start eating liver if they're um, not obviously vegetarian or vegan because we're getting a really amazing source of that heme iron plus you're getting all your B vitamins and your cofactors and everything else so it's almost like a really amazing um, nutrient dense little packet there and um, some women will happily make that into a pate um, and obviously we, we look at the ingredients of that and just hope that it um, all the other things that go into it aren't going to inhibit the, the actual usage of that. Dairy um, cream. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and sometimes alcohol. Uh, yeah. But And liver is not that palatable. I really, really don't like it unless it's obviously in pate form. But what you can do is, and I think that this is pretty clever, cut it up into small pieces and freeze it and then grate, take out a frozen piece and grate it into, you know, a spaghetti bolognese sauce, a stir fryer, you know, all of that sort of stuff and see how you go. Oh, I'm going to tell you straight away, I'm already like uh, gagging at the <laughs> idea of that. So, I'll tell you how I did it postpartum to try and make sure I got my iron sores up again. Uh, simplest trick, ladies, and I'm going to, you know, <laughs> tell you this because it's the best way if you're okay with it. Mince beef, get your butcher to mince the liver, mix them together, cook it in your bowl like normal oh, or any I other way you normally do mince beef. Easy. Yep. Simple, easy, throw in the spices, you'll never know there's a little bit in there, but you're getting great rich iron sauce coupled with some good grass-fed Australian beef and you are on a winner there. So um, let me make it that easy because, yes, I can't tell you that the idea of grating liver has <laughs> any, any, any oh kind of like desire for me i'm just like gross no thanks um you can't go you can't go full circle from vegan and start grating liver (laughs) you know what i have to deal with so much of it because i did loki a lot of it that um, i'm just we've always got it in the house but um fortunately i don't have to eat it because my iron's really good but um ladies if you are on an iron supplement a lot of them um you know the absorption of them varies depending on the type of iron um like the actual form um my favorite is probably like a a ferrous bisglycinate is probably my favorite um it has the least amount of um i guess side effects and has better absorption and tolerability um however not all women do great on that we always change it up if they're not responding the way we want to because obviously all women are different um most iron supplements ones that you buy over the counter are usually the ferrous sulfate which has a really high rate of intolerance and much poorer absorption so you know like i do think when it comes to iron it's absolutely worth looking at the underlying reasons why it's happening um if you do require supplementation if you can't 
get it from your diet and you've got all your other factors um, sort of addressed, then a practitioner prescription quality version that is going to suit you and is monitored is really important. It's also really important to have breaks from that as well because absorption of it does tend to decrease with time. Brilliant. And, you know, that's it. So, ladies, if you're challenged by this, if you're having, you know, troubles with iron management, then I think definitely chat to a good natural health practitioner. I definitely find that uh, until the appropriate testing is done, they still lie out there as, I have no idea. I'm just always low iron. You know, I spent 20 years saying I'm just low iron, like it's as if it's like part of who I am, not considering why I actually had it. So, um, because I'd had it forever, as far as I could ever remember, the first blood test I ever had was always low iron. So, it was never surprising to me when the doctor goes, oh, you've got low iron. Oh, yeah, I've always had that. <laughs> so, yeah. And Ash, I had a patient um, the other day, actually, like a beautiful dear patient of mine. She's doing our 28-day reset um, at the moment and she's always had chronically low iron and mm. we've used supplementation. She's had, had iron infusions and she just constantly dumps it. And I was looking at her blood test the other day and realized that her total protein, so one of her liver enzymes were so low and I've missed it. And that's an indication that that stomach acid is not, you know, breaking down and digesting that protein very well. And I was like, oh my goodness. Okay. The problem is not the iron. The problem is starting so much higher up in the digestive system. We need to like, you know, obviously give her digestive aids, digestive enzymes to be able to break it down in the bloody first place. (laughs) Yep. We're always learning, right? Don't worry. Cool. So, ladies, that is our, you know, just posing the question, is an iron infusion the answer? Um, We would love to hear your thoughts on this, as always. um, Don't hesitate to contact us through all of the channels that we spoke about earlier. So, ladies, you have been listening to Wellness Women Radio. We are the wellness women, Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston. We are raising the bar for women's health. And until next week, be well. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.